So today as we come back to James, we're going to jump ahead a little bit because when we start reading the section that Debbie showed to us a little while ago, it begins with his sort of um, mocking the people who say, tomorrow we're going to go to the city and make money. And uh, James brings it all the way home and says, you should always say, if the Lord wills, we will do such and so. We will go to the city and make money and that sort of thing. But not long after that, he really goes to town on rich people. Those people who have been saying, we're going to make money, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And James says, I have some things to say to rich people. So here's the verse that I'm going to just sort of launch off this morning, where James actually condemns those that he presumes are reading his letter by saying, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. So here's um, these people who are saying, let's go make money. And James says, well, wait a minute. About this making money, you don't get to make money on the backs of people um, whose wages you withhold. So you need to be fair employers so that it's a fair economy so that in the scheme of things we can understand that is, it is as the Lord wills that we're living our lives, making our plans and all of that sort of thing. I had an interesting experience yesterday morning that it, it kind of changed um, the way I sort people in the world try to explain that to you. So th my neighbor gets the Globe and Mail every Saturday morning. I think he only gets a Saturday, so I guess you can get a subscription just for Saturdays. And the person who delivers his, his Globe and Mail is this incredibly friendly, I think new Canadian, judging by his accent, and I'm not quite sure what African country he came from, but it's an African person who drives up in this car walks up and tosses the Globe and Mail onto my neighbor's deck. Well, yesterday, um, as he came, and as he does every Saturday, he waved at me, said, hello, how are you? And I talked to him. When he came back from Jim's deck, he walked up my pathway and said, I have an extra copy of the Globe and Mail. Would you like it? And that's a very simple thing. But it was not a necessary thing for him to do. And as he left, the way I sort things kind of got readjusted, right? I'm sure that life is somewhat challenging for him. I'm sure that delivering newspapers is a bit of a desperate way to make some money and all of that. And as we see people who deliver newspapers, you know, maybe the most fun they have is how far they can throw it and if they can actually hit the deck when they throw it this time or the porch or wherever they're throwing it to. Most of them are not very happy, exuberant human beings, right? They don't look for people to wave at or to greet. This morning, I was sitting in the same place at the same time and the delivery person drove past, but he doesn't bring a Globe and Mail on Sundays, he waved out his window at me. And it was like the Lord was saying, okay, would you please pay attention to that fellow? 
I don't know what will come of this. Um, but I think there's something I need to do in response. Certainly, um, the way that I view people needs to be tempered by what is a happy life really like? What is success really like? Um, where do people really fit, you know, on the ladder, and the, the rungs of that ladder? So it, it brings me back to what James says here, to those that are employed, but they're being defrauded by their employers. And so James says, all of your planning, set that aside, and when you really say, if the Lord wills, part of saying, if the Lord wills, would be to be in God's way, in the way that you treat those people who are at a different station than you. So as we think about our lives, they are different because our economy is very different from the one into which James was writing. Um, there is a much less of a gap between the rich and the poor, um, between those who are privileged and those who are not privileged. We have kind of squished things a bit more into the middle. Whereas in James' time, there were certainly those who were thoroughly rich and they were often oppressive and there were those that were the thoroughly poor, employed or perhaps slaves of those who are rich, and the gap was very, very wide. And James says, do you see what you're doing? I mean, the wages that you should pay these employees, you've withheld. And the harvesters, the work that they have done, that work is crying out against you and saying, this is not the will of the Lord. This is not the way God's people should be functioning. So I'm, I'm going to take a tour with you this morning <clears throat> quite a ways back into the Old Testament, and I, I think it'll bring us back to where we're starting from in James. But I, I'm going to go back to, to David and Bathsheba and Uriah and Nathan the prophet. So maybe you can remember that whole saga a fascinating saga, a very disturbing saga. David is the king of Israel. And in Second Samuel chapter 11, the whole story begins with a very telling comment. It was the time that the men went to war, and David didn't. David stayed home in Jerusalem. So something is wrong. Where should David have been? At war. That was his place. Now, what I'm bringing us to is sort of the sorting of the various ranks. In the day of David, David occupied the highest rank. He was king of Israel. He was the big boss. And the rest of the story begins to show us some people who are not at the highest level of their ladder. They're not on the top rung. So there's a woman whose name is Bathsheba. And she is the wife of a soldier. She's at home in Jerusalem, and she is on the rooftop and takes a bath. And David, who should have been out fighting the war, was watching. He saw her on the rooftop, and he said, Who is that? Because she was very beautiful. And they said, Well, that has to be Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David says, I would like to see her. So he, he sends for Bathsheba. He brings her to his room, his palace, and he makes love to her. 
and she becomes pregnant because of his uh, unfaithfulness and his disobedience as, as the king of Israel. Now he has a fix. Um, what am I going to do with this woman who I have now impregnated? Um, and then he thinks, I know, Uriah, I, I'm the top of the heap, I'm the boss, so I can somehow or other fix this as far as Uriah is concerned. I don't want Uriah to know what has happened. I don't want him to know that I am any part of that. So um, I will send the orders and we'll have Uriah come home. And when he comes home to visit his wife, he will think that he has impregnated her and that the child is his and everything will be fine. I will carry on doing my lazy work of not fighting, not being at the battles. So Uriah comes home. And wouldn't you know it, Uriah is a person of great character. And rather than sleeping with his wife, he just sleeps outside and says, when he is questioned about it, when all of my fellows are out there risking their lives, why would I just be involving myself in enjoyment with my wife? I belong on the battlefield. Again, the little irony that the king belongs on the battlefield. But the person of more sterling character says, I should go back to the war. That's where I belong. Now David has a conundrum. How is he going to have Uriah think that he's the father of the child? So he sends word to Joab, who is his commander. And once again, David is the guy who's on top. He, he's the one who calls all the shots. Joab is his commander, and Joab must do what he's told to do. And the word comes to Joab that he's to place Uriah on the battlefield in the place where he is likely to be shot, where, where likely an arrow will find him. And Joab, we don't know what's in his mind as he realizes what David has ordered him to do, but he's a man under orders, and so he sends Uriah to the hot spot in the battle, and Uriah is slain. Um, it's an awful thing, and when we look back at David, we cast our minds to the time that God said he was looking for someone who was after his own heart, and God dismissed Saul, the reigning king, chose David as a man after God's own heart. And we're left wondering how it is that David proves to be a person after God's own heart. I think there are some other accounts of his life that begin to show us what it is that, that God was interested in. But certainly in the... Um, events surrounding um, Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Um, we look at David and, and we look at him and, and think poorly of him. We, we do not have the regard for him that you would want to have for someone who is at a high station in, in the economy of the population of Israel. So, David is one of those rich persons, the oppressive sorts of persons. Uriah is just a soldier. He just is someone who does what he's told. Normally, the way things ought to be 
would be that David proves to be a very valiant king. He proves to have great wisdom. He should prove to, um, you know, care for himself and all of the people around him with, with great dignity. That's not how it turns out. What is a soldier like? Well, I mean, a soldier may just be a fighter. I mean, nothing remarkable about a soldier, perhaps. Maybe he's a good marksman. Maybe he has, he's a good shield holder or something. But it's all turned upside down. And David sort of sinks in our estimation. Uriah begins to climb in our estimation. And James says, be very careful when you think that um, the rich are the ones that are blessed and are the favored ones and the poor aren't. And here's an example of how that doesn't work. You rich people are oppressing your laborers and that's not to be. Well, when Nathan comes to visit David, things begin to really show in, in terms of the kind of the editorial intent of the record of, of Scripture. So in Second Samuel chapter 12, just follow how it went when Nathan the prophet came to visit David. It says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought, he bought it, and he nourished it. And it grew up together with him and his children. I don't know if they named it, probably. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Nathan, I think, prepared to run for his life because he had just delivered a scathing prophetic message to the king of Israel. And when David loses his temper and says, that's preposterous, that poor man has only one poor lamb, and somebody takes it, a rich person takes it, instead of one of this rich person's, you know, many sheep, many goats, find that guy, and we will make him pay for this atrocity. And David looks, or Nathan looks square in the eye to David, and he says, you, you're the man. You're the man. In, in, in taking this apart, um, we, we might ask, what was it that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back? in this whole matter. Was it the fact that David was an adulterer, which he was? Was it the fact that he was a murderer, which he also was? Or was it his disregard for the person Uriah 
um, whose reputation and and livelihood and uh, existence didn't matter a bit to David. Uriah became a pawn in David's chess game. It it didn't cross David's mind um, that he was being um, incredibly wicked in his heart in in planning the demise of Uriah. So, I mean, the first part was easy. I'll just get Uriah home. He will get to be with his wife, and he will think he's the father. Job done. Oh, if that didn't work, oh, then I will actually arrange for the death of this soldier guy. Once again, because I'm the important person here. He, he's not an important person. Now, when we look at the law in the Old Testament, it's interesting the things that are highlighted. Several times in the law, and certainly in the prophets, the matter of defrauding employees is, is held as a, a great violation. And, I mean, in the scheme of things, you, you would think there are a whole lot of other things that might actually be um, more heinous. But in the law, taking care of those for whom we have responsibility was of paramount importance. So the law stipulated that you must pay the wages that are due to your employees. You must take care of the slaves. You must take care of the less fortunate. That is your moral responsibility and your ethical responsibility. And so when we carry that through into the stories of the Old and New Testament, we come across a David and we realize that, that he actually is in violation of the spirit of the law in which there should be a very proper respect and care for those for whom we have responsibility. I think in the way that Nathan tells this story, it's not to point out that adultery is a, a terrible sin. It's not to point out that murder is a terrible sin. It's to point out that the disregard of a person's character, reputation, and very life is a great sin. What David did was a sin against Uriah, whereas David should have been the one who was uh, watching out for Uriah, making sure that he would have been protected as well as he could be on the battlefield rather than being exposed as David actually f planned for him to be. H how does that come all the way back to my friend who delivers the Globe and Mail? Um, we sort our lives in interesting ways, don't we? We, we sort out the importance of people in interesting ways. So one of the very typical ways that we sort people out is what they work at. What a person works at will give me a clue um, given my frame of reference as to where that person ranks on my hierarchy of ranking. Um, I perform lots of weddings and this last week I've I married two doctors. It's interesting that they want 
very clearly to be referred to as Dr. and Mrs. So-and-so. They were both male doctors. Um, be very clear about that. Uh, one that I had yesterday, there were more Jewish doctors and dentists than you could throw a stick at, and they wanted to be sure that I knew that this was Dr. So-and-so. This is Dr. So-and-so. You think? Interesting. And, and yes, that's admirable. You know, more power to them for the education and for, you know, all of the things that they've committed themselves to. But one of the ways that we sort ourselves is to see, well, what do you work at? And therefore, we might determine how important you are. Where would you rank a newspaper delivery person? Where would I rank that person? You, you know, we'd be hard-pressed to say that's a very important job. What are some of the other jobs that we might sort and place on our hierarchy of importance? How about the person that checks out your groceries at Zares? Where does that person fit? How about the guy that works on your car? Now, I mean, now, to work on your car, that person has to be a computer genius, has to know stuff inside and out. It's not just grab the manual and figure out what the problem is. I mean, these guys are genius, so maybe it's changed. Maybe it used to be a guy that we would think of as being, you know, kind of oily and greasy and under the hood. Now it's a technician with a white coat, and it's not a guy. It's a woman. So there it is. Things get shaken up, right? How do we sort the importance of people in, in our society? James says um, the, the problem is that you are sort of, um, you're impressed by the wealthy, and yet they are the ones who are oppressing you. And you who are the wealthy, you're not caring for the people for whom you have responsibility. And that's not an okay thing. That, that's not to be a, a forgiven thing. It's not to be something overlooked. Um, that's totally out of whack. And those who are the laborers, those who are the harvesters, fully deserve the respect along with the pay that is due to them. We might say, well, that, that's, that's fine. Yeah, I should probably sort you know, the way I value people's importance. I should make sure that I have a, a more Christian way of valuing people. Um, but I'm, I don't employ anybody, so, so you know, there's nothing really I have to do. Well, the way that we are responsible for one another and especially those who would be sorted down in the normal scheme of things, the responsibility we have for them is not to pay their wages. The responsibility we have for them is the respect that they are due. And if I ever find myself um, treating someone poorly and excusing myself on the basis of their being at a lower station than I perceive myself to be, I have committed 
a real violation of the morality and ethics of my Christian life. It's not just an okay thing. In, in the law, it wasn't just one of those things you should be careful to do every now and then. It was like, no, you should not defraud anybody that um, is beholden to you, that, that you're responsible for. So I, I think it, it means practically that I need to look around and, and see the people in my sort of orbit and ask, who are the people who got me where I am? And I encourage you to do the same thing. What is it that you do? Where is it that you are? What's your life like these days? Who got you there? All right, that's good. Secondly, who is it that keeps you there? Who is it without whose skills, without whose employment, without whose, whose job, you couldn't do the thing that you primarily do? And then who is it that helps you to be there? You know, maybe the, the person is not critical to your function, um, but they certainly help what you do get done, help you be the person that you want to be. Um, what could you do to respect them? What do you do? I'm, I'm sure that you do. But, but realizing that every human person is an image bearer, whoever it is that helped you get where you are, that helps you stay there, that you know, is, is in your orbit, that person is a person created in God's image. That, that person is, is one whom God dearly, dearly loves. Even though in our scheme of things they might only be such and such, or they might only do this or that. Um, what is it about my Globe and Mail delivery person that arrests my attention? I want to know what it is that causes him to smile and greet me with warm exuberance every time he sees me. I, I hope he tells me something about God. But that might not be what he wants to tell me. But because of his demeanor, I'm drawn to him. And I, I'm thinking, okay, th that helps me maybe just adjust the lens on how I look at people. When you go to the grocery store and the cashier, you know, checks your groceries, did that person help you get where you are? No, not necessarily. Um, but do you need that person for your life to be what it is? Absolutely. Um, does that person want to be a, a grocery cashier? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's what that person does to care for her whole family. Um, and when I greet that person and when I speak to that person, all of a sudden these rules need to come into play. This is someone created in God's image. This is not someone whom I dare put on a lower rung of my ladder. And I need to catch that and say, 
that means I'm, I'm not going to treat this person as my employee without feelings, without personhood. It means that I'm going to speak respectfully to that person. I'm going to say thank you to that person. I'm not going to complain that she missed the 50% off on that item and I had to remind her about it, any, any of that. I'm going to say, wait a minute, in the Bible, it certainly seems as though the ranking that God cares about is different from our ranking. That, that the heinous thing about what David did was that he disregarded the person of Uriah. Uriah simply became the husband of this woman that David wanted. He simply became the soldier that David could send to the place where he would meet his demise. He was not the person that God knew him to be and David should have known him to be. So James says, be very careful about how you sort your relationships. Be very careful about how you sort your perceptions. And you, have, you who have the opportunity um, to, to do right by those who are, in society's terms, at a lower rung, make sure that you do what's right by that person. The harvester's wages need to be paid. Whose wages need to be paid in your life? Maybe not physical wages, but who is the person that you need to thank? So I love the signs all around thanking healthcare workers during this pandemic. I love that. And I, I'm sad when it begins to diminish as frustration begins to mount here and there. We need to be people who honor everyone around us. And as we do it, I think we properly sink down in our own estimation. If I thought I was better than a newspaper delivery person, I'm not. Because when people think about having encountered me, they're not wondering why it is that I am so exuberantly friendly and lovely to them, right? So why would I think that I am on a higher rung? I'm going to try to be exuberant and friendly to everyone that I meet, having said that, so. It's a long talk about a very simple message. Take care of those people um, who depend on you in one way or another um, to have the self-respect that they are due, um, to have the sense of, of fulfillment that, that they deserve. When someone does something well and you thank them for that, that's a good thing. And if my day is cheered up by a person who gives me a free copy of the Globe and Mail, legion are those whose days would be cheered up if people would treat them with the kind of dignity and response or, and respect that are due to people who are created in the image of God and who are our brothers and sisters in this world. Right?